Hello and welcome to Tales from the Campanile, a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. In our inaugural season, From the Outside In, Women in Politics, we explore the long and embattled history of women who left their mark on the nation's political arena. Please join our host, Emmy Award-winning journalist Belva Davis, for episode four, Breaking Through Multiple Glass Ceilings. The 1960s ushered in a global movement of political revolution. No place in America saw more radical change than California. From the free speech movement and the summer of love to the famed communities of Haight-Ashbury, the Golden State would never be the same. California politics were not immune to these currents of change. At the beginning of the decade, there was only one woman serving in the California legislature. In 1966, voters tripled that number, sending not only two women, but two women of color to the state assembly. One of those women was March Fong Yu. Born in the small Central Valley town of Oakdale, California, Fong Yu came from very humble beginnings. My parents had a Chinese hand laundry, and in a small town there were no other uh, families of Chinese ancestry, so consequently uh, all of my associates and friends were Caucasian. So I really grew up in a Caucasian environment. I don't think the difference that I felt was so much in terms of ancestry, so much as I felt a difference in social economic class, because being the child of a of a person who found their their daily living in a hand laundry, I was I would be classified in the lower socioeconomic level and also living in the back of the laundry where I did live placed me in the in the lower socioeconomic class. Yet racial discrimination was not absent from Fong Yu's childhood. Growing up, her daily reality of living in poverty was often accompanied by reminders that, as an Asian American, she was seen as an outsider. I got interested in education, I guess, back in high school. I recall being influenced away from teaching because my counselor in high school, when we were talking about careers, mentioned that, uh, when I mentioned I was interested in being a teacher, he said that it would not be a very good idea because it would be very difficult to find a job uh, because I was Chinese. And that really discouraged me. Then I recall very vividly riding on the bus to school and um, the bus driver out was, started talking to me about what I was going to be when I grow up. And uh, I remember saying something like, uh, well, I sure like chemistry because I'm pretty good at it. And his comment was, uh, well, that's, uh, that'd be a very good uh, field for you to go in. You know, when you finish your study, you could go back and help your people in China. And that really busted me up. He didn't say it with any type of malice or anything, but it just uh, rather established some kind of a tone in terms mm -hmm. of who belongs here and who does not belong here. These interactions only fueled Fong Yu's determination to succeed, especially in school. Graduating at the top of her high school class, 
She went on to earn a degree in dental hygiene from UC Berkeley, a master's degree in public health from Mills College, and eventually a PhD in education from Stanford University. After working in public health education, the mother of two then set her sights on working in the community. I never was content to just stay home and, and do nothing but raise the children. I found myself then with time to get involved in a PTA type thing. A new law was uh, enacted which um, changed the appointed county board of education to an elected board of education and I thought well this would be a good opportunity to um, be on the school board. I didn't think that I had any chance to be appointed by anybody so mm -hmm. uh, an elected board, school board, uh, would be something that I could achieve. So I ran and uh, against the superintendent's slate of uh, members. The superintendent had his picked board that he wanted elected, and, and I was elected, so mm -hmm. his hand-picked person didn't make it. Bong Yu's tenure on the Alameda County Board of Education proved a natural transition into politics. Wanting to shake up the Board of Supervisors, she waged an unsuccessful campaign against the incumbent supervisor in her district. The loss only intensified her desire to become more politically active. She began to participate in a host of local campaigns and issues and even started working in the office of Assemblyman Nicholas Petrus. When his seat became open in 1966, Marge Fong Yu put her name on the ballot. The year I ran was the year that there was a new apportionment. In other words, the district lines had all changed. Mm -hmm. And that was why Mr. Petrus was running for the Senate. So he vacated his assembly seat, and um, so I ran. Uh, I recall um, starting about six months before the primary election, going out every day at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and ringing doorbells till it got dark. And my two children went with me. We would go down one street and up another, leaving, ringing doorbells and leaving our brochure. I thought I had a fairly good chance because um, the area in which I was campaigning was somewhat the same area which I had um, campaigned before for the school board, of course during the supervisorial day too. So I thought that name identification-wise, Mm -hmm. uh, I had a pretty good shot at it. A swell of community support, however, did not equate to an endorsement from the party's political structure. The party tries to stay away from endorsing in a primary election, although a lot of democratic groups and democratic activists did endorse candidates, like we have the volunteer clubs and different organizations like that who do make endorsements. The year that I ran, I do recall that those organizations did endorse primary candidates. I did not receive the endorsement of any of them. Even Assemblyman Petrus threw his weight behind Fong Yu's primary opponent. Maybe he thought that, um, that uh, I didn't have a chance. When you're pressed to endorse candidates, sometimes you ultimately make a decision as to the one that's going to win more than what you, the person you prefer sometimes. Because there weren't that many women, there was only one woman in the legislature, women just did not get elected. And uh, a Chinese woman at that, 
I've never held it against uh, Mr. Petrus. Um, I know he's uncomfortable about it, but uh, I've also understood the pressures he was put under. March Fongyu proved them wrong, scoring a decisive victory in the Democratic primary. And the general election, she did it again. That year, she joined Yvonne Braithwaite Burke from Los Angeles as the first women of color to take their seats in California's State House, breaking through the political barriers of race and gender to win elected office was a difficult task. But that was just the beginning. Navigating the state legislature's white male culture, notorious for its carousing and backroom negotiations, was yet another set of obstacles. In brilliant fashion, Fong Yu found her way to forge alliances and be part of the discussion. I had several of those little get-togethers, but I used to do a lot of that during my first year because I guess I was one of the few women, and I liked to cook, so I used to make, cook a big meal and then have them come over and eat, and it really helped a lot. So that's why I developed, devised my own method of getting these fellows together and so that I could uh, be in on a lot of things. They always liked to have some place to go to after work because they mm -hmm. were all up here with no place to go after work, and so they'd come mm -hmm. over my place, and I'd always have something good to eat. It was a good way to establish some of the very early friendships that even now I still maintain. Mm -hmm. On the floor of the assembly, Fong Yu wasted no time in challenging the state's powerful political interests and pushing legislation that gave voice to the concerns of women. The first set of these bills advocated for the rights of consumers. So I introduced a bill to create a consumer advocate for, to speak on behalf of consumers. So I don't think I was regarded as a friend of, the, of big business then. I didn't find them that convincing, and maybe that's because I had never been um, part of that, that development in society. I was always at the other end of um, the services, and the consumer end of the services. I guess it became a continuing matter of um, debate between us in terms of what's their problems of being a bank and my problems of being a, a bank client. Fang Yu again addressed the political concerns of women when she took the lead on a bill that would ban pay toilets in public buildings, a practice that was particularly discriminatory against women since urinals were free. And I think Walter Powers, someone in Powers who introduced the bill, to, who, who had the bill the first year I was here, met a great deal of opposition from the Sacramento airport officials. So he wasn't really anxious to pursue the bill anymore. So I said, okay, then let me, let me try my hand at it. So I think I introduced it the next year. So he dreamed up this smashing the, the, the toilet on the Capitol steps and having a protest parade, protest against pay toilet mm -hmm. parade. So I went along with it, never thinking that it would attract so much attention. Then before we knew it, it uh, you know, apparently it was so well staged that it attracted the attention to all over the world because people kept people started sending me clippings of this 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 thing all the way from Rome and London and, and Tokyo that apparently it appeared in the American language newspapers all over the world. But of course it didn't help my bill though because it got killed in government organization committee though. Fong Yu continued to advocate for women's issues in the legislature. In nineteen seventy she introduced a bill that would allow schools to educate students about venereal disease. 
The sexual revolution of the 1960s had led to a near epidemic of VD among the nation's youth. As a public health expert, the rising trend frightened Fong Yu, who saw classroom education as the best and most realistic solution to combat the spread of infection. Her position clashed with the traditionally held view that discussion of sex resided within the realms of parents and the church, a view strongly held by California Governor Ronald Reagan. I guess I was interested in carrying the venereal disease education by way of some of my acquaintances in the Women, California Federation of Women's Club, and it was being pointed out by the health people that VD was an epidemic among young people that year. I introduced legislation to make it possible to have VD education in the classrooms. The, the opposition felt that if we allowed VD education in the classroom, how were we going to control sex education? Because sex education is under the Schmitz Act. was had very stringent requirements. They had, you had to um, notify the parents that you were going to do sex education. You had to have the materials examined by the parents. And if the teacher engaged in any uh, area of sex education, that, that their credential could be suspended or revoked. And I tried to separate VD education from sex education and saying, saying that, well, VD education is really health education or could be part of biology. And actually the bill went through fairly well, very, fairly easily, because I had the very conservative Republican Assemblyman um, Barnes co-authoring the bill with me, and there was really that, not that much um, trouble I had in the early introduction of the bill until it got to the governor's desk and he vetoed it is when the when the controversy began. Well, I don't know whether it was pressure or whether it was just his personal um, opposition that uh, caused him to veto it. His veto message, as I recall, m made it almost seem like it was just his personal opinion that um, bill was unnecessary because he thought that, um, that the VD, VD should be eliminated not by VD education but by teaching young people that they should abstain from sexual promiscuity and that was really the way to attack spread of VD. I did try to override it. I just decided that my best strategy was to get all the people that supported me originally to help me to get it over, to help me override it. But apparently Reagan's veto was so strong in terms of keeping his party united that, I, uh, that my override attempt was unsuccessful because um, the, the governor managed to persuade the Republicans who had voted for the bill the first time to change their votes and vote to sustain his um, veto. The governor was powerful enough to even make the person who co-authored my bill, the Republican co-author, vote against his own bill. I guess we finally came to a very minor change to it, which um, I guess made the governor feel that uh, he had won his case and he saved face so that he could sign it the second year round in, in relative obscurity, I guess problems and whether it strengthened me politically is uh, something that uh, one could conjecture. Uh, it probably did in the, in the respect that um, it made me seem like someone who was uh, dedicated to principle and was unafraid to fight for a cause which uh, I felt was right in the face of um, powerful 
opposition. After four terms in the California State House, Fong Yu looked to take the next political step. In 1972, her friend and fellow pioneer, Yvonne Braithwaite Burke, successfully ran for Congress, becoming the first African-American woman to represent the West Coast in Washington, D.C. When the position of Secretary of State opened two years later with Jerry Brown's gubernatorial run, Fong Yu did not hesitate. She threw her hat into statewide politics. Very few people who are, ma who are major contributors really didn't take my candidacy seriously. By that I mean they, they, weren't, they weren't quite sure I was going to win. Just as she had in 1966, March Fong Yu proved them wrong. When the votes were tallied, she again made history. That night in 1974, she became the first woman to be elected Secretary of State of California and the first Asian American woman in the country to ever hold a constitutional office. She would serve in that office for the next 20 years, winning re-election an unprecedented four times. Throughout her long career, she bravely broke through multiple glass ceilings signaling to young and old alike that American politics had begun to change. March Fong Yu was a catalyst of that change. And as we hear in her 1973 address at Foothills College, read by San Francisco Supervisor Jane Kim, her message and legacy continues to resonate today. It is timely that the title of your continuing series of presentations is The Self-Sufficient Woman, I say this because if there was one field where women must be especially self-sufficient, it is politics. I say this not only because I could cite statistic after statistic about the small number of women in elected offices. I say this not because I could talk about the virtual void of women in higher political administrative positions. I was tempted to ask someone to flash the picture of the Nixon cabinet, which appeared in yesterday's papers. Rarely could you find a more charming group of short-haired, white-faced men over 50 anywhere. Looking at that picture makes me really miss Martha Mitchell's role in public life. But my saying women have to be especially self-sufficient in politics has to do with a kind of seriousness syndrome, which is part of the double standard in politics. To be taken seriously in Sacramento, people like Yvonne Burke, Pauline Davis, and myself have to work twice as hard as my colleagues. We really have to do our homework, for some colleagues delight in baiting us and finding that we might not have one fact at our fingertips. Related to this rather strange resentment of our having fun, when women have fun, there seems to be a massive male overreaction. When one burning took place of a uniquely female garment of support, all of a sudden women seeking legal justice and social equality were frivolous, crazy bra burners. If I may speak jocularly, I wonder if someone revolting against the rather unusual athletic mystique in this country were to burn a uniquely male garment of support, whether there might be a similar reaction. Maybe if some men had to bear and rear unwanted babies themselves, they would better understand our resentment of laws relating to our reproductive systems. Maybe if some men let their wives involuntarily control their income, they would understand better our resentment of present discriminatory statutes directed toward women as a class. And maybe if some men were raped and in the pursuit of justice,
They found they had to reveal humiliating information about their past lives. Maybe then they would understand the anger of women who felt they were doubly wronged by the rapists and the laws concerning rape. I guess what I'm saying is that I believe it is about time that some men need to do some honest rethinking about their perspective and prejudices. Being one of only two women in the California legislature, in the last six years I've been in a good position to see the emerging political activism of women, and I'm delighted by it. I'm told by people in the Capitol Post Office that I get more mail than any other legislator. I often wondered why, until I realized that, though I represent a single East Bay Assembly District, I have a statewide constituency of people who identify with me, some because I come from a minority background, and some because I'm of a majority gender. I'm confident that the two constituencies for whom I have become something of a symbol will continue to grow in power and influence so that they no longer feel that they are constantly being white-mailed. This has been a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Narrated by Belva Davis. Researched and written by Todd Holmes. Produced and edited by Shanna Farrell and Christina Kim. Production assistance was provided by Julie Allen, Paul Burnett, David Dunham, Martin Meeker, and Linda Norton. And a special thank you to project advisor, David Boyer. All interview clips were drawn from the Oral History Center collections. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.